Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. And this is Jay. And this is your new Comics Wednesday episode for August 25th, 2021. And uh, just a reminder, if you want the DC uh, new books this week, that's on our DC Spotlight that comes out on Tuesdays. And apparently there were a lot of huge DC books. It's so funny. Like I can always tell when it's a big DC week, uh, the books that are most popular because the downloads like take a huge jump, um, which they did this week. Um, so I, I think a lot of it has to do with Robin and also Son of Kal-El, issue number two. Um, people really seem to dig those books. Maybe Mr. Miracle as well. Because, um, yeah, you guys really devoured that. So as always, thanks for the support. And keep in mind that the DC... Uh, spotlights are uh, filled with spoilers. Um, we, we don't go spoiler free, but on the new Comic Wednesday episode, this episode you're listening to right now, it is spoiler free. So Jay and I are going to talk about some of the books we've had a chance to read. And uh, I think I forgot to mention the DC Spotlight was split up into two episodes just for length purposes because um, there was so many books. We talked about 15 books. All that being said, we're going to talk about 18 books on this one, but it'll be much, much shorter because as I said, we don't go into spoilers and analyze as much. We're just going to give you our general feelings on the issues, talk about uh, what some of our favorite stuff was. So we'll dive right in because it probably is going to be a little bit of a longer uh, episode. And we're going to start with an image comic. It's vinyl issue number three from writer Doug Wagner. The art is by Daniel Hilliard. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Ed, du- uh, Ed Dukeshire. This is the same team that brought us Plastic. Um, and it's Plastic was pretty out there. I haven't had a chance to read any of vinyl yet, but Jay's been digging it. So what do you think of this uh, issue, Jay? Well, it's good to be back. Uh, COVID didn't get me, so uh, that's good. <laughs> but uh, I was one of the first books I read was vinyl. Um, we get to uh, see Walter, and he finally shows uh, his, uh, I guess, his main uh other serial killer, uh, Renee. And we get like a flashback 24 hours before he meets up with her and uh, she has a nickname for him. So read the book to find out what, what she how, what the nickname she gives him. Um, we get more uh, of the other uh, characters in the book that are going to be, I guess, important down the road. There's like a mystery, a couple of mystery uh, villains down here that they're trying. Because remember, he's trying to get his friend uh, Denise, who's working, retired FBI agent. That's why Walter got these people together to try to rescue him from a, a cult. The ending is great on this book uh, because you kind of find out a big secret reveal of what's why uh, Walter listens to the music or anything. But I won't give it away. Like I said, it's a it's a good story, and there's a lot going on in this uh, issue. And it's very bloody, so it's not for kids, but uh, I dig it. <laughs> yeah, it very much has a little bit of a Dexter feel is what I got from flipping through the three issues so far, even though I haven't had a chance to read it. So it's not for the faint of heart, but there, it's kind of dark humor, I guess you'd say. Yeah. Uh, all right. First book I'm going to talk about is Amazing Spider-Man number 72 from writer Nick Spencer. On art, we have Federico Sabantini, Zeke Carlos, Marcelo Ferrero, and Carlos Gomez with colors by Alex Sinclair and letters by Joe Caramagna. And I got to think the reason they're throwing everything but the kitchen sink at these uh, art duties is because they are putting out so much amazing Spider-Man content lately. Uh, And I've talked about it, you know, ad nauseum, uh, just about how they're trying to to wrap up all of the uh, storylines that Nick Spencer uh, has, has outstanding because he's leaving the book. Um, So that being said, like, once again, I got to wonder why they, 
if they're trying to wrap up all these storylines, why do we get a, a story where not very much happens? There's like one big reveal. And I don't even know if it's n- completely new information. It's new to me, but there's a lot of uh, amazing Spider-Man that even though I've, I've filled in my run now and I have from like issue almost from 100 all the way up to current, there's a lot of uh, late 90s and early 2000s Spider-Man stuff that I haven't read. So there is a, a revelation here. To me, it was a revelation anyway, regarding Norman Osborn. And I don't know, like I said, if it's been done before or if, if this is new. If it's something new that Nick Spencer has done, I, I sort of like it. Um, as much as I have talked before about not really liking retcons very much, um, because it, it doesn't, to me, it doesn't make sense. Like, why hasn't it been mentioned before? But this one actually sort of does, like the secret of it and, and the need for it to be a secret is sort of built into what the idea is. So if this is Nick Spencer's idea, I give him all the credit. If it's not, and he's just using it for his story, that, that's still a good choice as well. Um, but it's sort of the only thing that happens in this issue. So I feel like in a way, this issue is sort of indicative of the problem I've had with Nick Spencer's run on Spider-Man. It's just, it's like, he's channeling Brian Bendis and you got to read like three or four issues to get like a big chunk of story. Um, you know, that being said, we know that there are like six different sinister sixes that Kindred has, uh, has sort of set in motion to uh, attack Spider-Man. And, and the, the first part of this issue starts off with just Spider-Man sort of narrating um, his battle with, with one of the sets of, of the Sinister Six. And again, it, it's, it just feels very decompressed. The story just, it's like you couldn't do more with those pages. So anyway, like I, I've said before, it, it definitely is time for Nick Spencer to move on to, to something else. And I'm very curious to see who's going to take over Spider-Man like long-term because we know they, they announced like a team of like four writers and I think six artists that are going to take it over for a short period of time. Cause they're going to go to three times a month, which that bugs the heck out of me too. Like enough to, to twice a month is, is too many. And in my opinion, one amazing Spider-Man title you know, a month, you know, one issue a month, that's fine. Two, you're kind of pushing it three, ugh, you know, and I, I, I don't know. To be honest with you, if I don't like it, I may just drop it, even though I want to keep my run going and and probably just like pick them up and, you know, at a discount at a at a con or something where I can get them cheaper than I mean, that's like 15 bucks a month just on Amazing Spider-Man. And to be honest with you, Amazing Spider-Man right now is not worth $15 a month. Um, if it improves and it's and it's great, then, yeah, maybe I'll be on board. Um, and I mean, I can't, I can't tell you the last time I've would have loved to have three issues of amazing Spider-Man a month. Maybe when McFarlane was on it and you know, the, the three hundreds when Michelini was writing it, I, I really dug that stuff. And not just because of McFarlane art, it just was a, it was a very fun time, but when the stories are so decompressed and you feel like you have to read so many issues to get a big chunk of story, you know, that's not the best. And in a way, maybe that's why they're doing three issues, right? Like you need to read three or four issues of Nick Spencer's Spider-Man to feel like you get a big chunk of story. Okay. We're going to put it out three times a month. Well, that's fine. If it wasn't, you know, for five bucks an issue, you know, if you were going to charge me like $5 for all three issues, you know, then that's another, like, what is it? A dollar 66 or whatever it would be per issue, dollar 75 per issue, let's say, then that's fine. I don't mind that. You know, but when you're paying $5 an issue and you, you need three issues a month just to give us a, 
decent chunk of story. Mm, nah, it's not sitting too well with me, Marvel. So, uh, all right. Next book I'm going to mention is speaking of Todd McFarlane, it's King Spawn number one. Now this had like five, between 500,000 and 600,000 orders. And McFarlane was sort of bragging about it on social media. It's like the biggest comic uh, in terms of sales and, and like, you know, a really, really long time. But you sort of have to take that with a grain of salt because there were some very, very exclusive variants. And Todd even posted on his Instagram of him destroying the, the like over um, like the extra, the extra stock, right? Like the, the print run, they printed more than they thought they'd need. Um, Cause basically I think it was like a one in 300 variant. So for every 300 issues you ordered, you got this like special uh, version of the book that's like signed and, and hand numbered by Todd. And, you know, if, if there were any leftover, he destroyed them. And he said, he's never going to print that cover again. He's never going to autograph that cover. So yeah, there's going to be, you're, you're going to see this book in, in dollar, a lot of dollar boxes. And there's people that probably bought cases and cases of it that aren't even going to open those cases because they just bought it for that, that cover that's going for like $350 already. So yes, it sold a lot of copies, but you know, there were reasons for that. Anyway, it's got multiple stories. So the main story is written by Sean Lewis with Todd McFarlane. And uh, the art is by Jave Fernandez. The colors are by FCO Placencia and the letters are by And World Design. And then there are some backup stories that are written by Todd McFarlane. And there's various artists on those backups. There's a backup starring Haunt, which is uh, drawn by Steven Segovia. There's a backup called Nightmare, which is written by uh, Marcia, I'm sorry, it's drawn by Marcio Takara. There's a backup called The Hero with art by Philip Tan. And then there's uh, a backup with Gunslinger Spawn, which is drawn by Brett Booth. We have inks by Adelso Corona and Daniel Enriquez on various uh, stories, on the various of those backup stories. Uh, Placencia handles the colors for uh, the main story, King Spawn. But then we have Andrew Dollhouse, Marcelo Maiello, Peter Steigerwald, and Dave McCaig on the backup stories, and Tom Orzakowski. Uh, I think the regular Spawn letter handles the uh, the letters for all those backup stories. So there's a lot to unpack here. It's a big issue. Um, so you do sort of get your your value. And the other thing that I'll mention is there's a there's a couple of interviews in the back as well. Well, there's one interview where Todd McFarlane is interviewing Sean Lewis about coming on Spawn and, and being a part of it. And then there's another one, <coughs> excuse me, where um, Lewis interviews McFarlane. So you get a, you sort of get a taste of, uh, of each of those. And I, and I will say as far as the gunslinger, which uh, is a very popular Spawn character right now, um, it's, it's not the real clean dynamic style from Brett Booth that you might be used to, but it still, it still works really, really well. So it, this is the first time I can remember Booth kind of changing his style uh, to make it a little more visceral and a little more gritty. Um, I think it works really, really well. Um, some of the other backups, they, they work to varying degrees. Um, you know, some are better than others. I didn't really care for the nightmare one for, for whatever reason. It just didn't resonate with me. Whereas I thought the haunt one was pretty good. And the main Spawn story, 
uh, or the main story, King Spawn, it felt very much like a like a Spawn story. Like, why isn't this in in the regular Spawn book, right? But I, I get it. I understand. And and when you, if you read that interview that when Sean Lewis is interviewing Todd McFarlane, he's asking him, hey, why did you decide to, to build a whole universe around Spawn? He sort of explains it. So I won't spoil that for you here either. Um, so all in all, do, do I think it's worth it? Well, I'm going to say something pretty obvious here. If you're a big Spawn guy, you're going to love this and it's totally worth it. If you're not a big Spawn guy, then no, you probably can skip this or you can wait. Um, because again, I think this book was tremendously overordered and you may be able to find it in, you know, a, a discount bin or uh, maybe not for as cheap as a dollar, but maybe for like two bucks, three bucks, definitely below cover. Um, and I go back to, to thinking about how like Spawn number one, for a long time, that book didn't have much value. You, you Like all the image number ones, you know, and some of them still, even now, like Wildcats number one. Um, I don't see too many Savage Dragon, but probably like Shadowhawk, definitely Youngblood. Like you can still find those in like dollar bins and Spawn you could for a long time too. Um, and then it gradually became a $10 book. And I think now it's like 25 or 30. Um, but the, yeah, there were so many, there were so many sold, um, you know, way more than 500,000, you know, we say five to 600,000 for King Spawn number one, it sounds like a lot, but you know, back in the nineties before everybody had a, a computer in their pocket with, you know, access to instant entertainment where there were more people reading comics and, and Spawn number one sold in the millions. I think, um, it was definitely over a million. Um, so there were tons out there, but, you know, obviously over time, they've all been uh, snatched up and now it's actually kind of a hard book to find, um, or at least for, you know, decent price. So I think ultimately that could be what happens if the spawn universe takes off, right? If people come in later and they figure out, Hey, Todd McFarlane has this whole spawn universe going on. And I really want to get on the ground floor and get those early issues, but it's going to be a while. I mean, it took probably 20, 25 years, if not longer. I mean, it's been spawn came out in 1992, I think. So we're talking almost 30 years ago for it to creep up to 25 bucks, 30 bucks. That's not, you know, great return on your $2 investment. Um, so if you're not sure, you know, you can skip it. If you're a spawn fan, you're definitely going to want to pick it up. Would I pick it up thinking it's going to go up in value? Well, you know, in 30 years, it might be worth 20 bucks, you know? So I don't think it's necessarily, um, going to have a lot of value that way, unless you do pick up one of those super rare variants. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I, like personally, I go back and forth. I haven't read the entire spawn series. Um, I have like that I bought off the rack probably from number one to like number 100 before I dropped it because I stopped reading it like around issue 30 and I just kept buying it at a habit because it was Todd McFarlane. I bought like 70 issues and just kept sticking it in a bag and board and put it in my box and never read it. And that, and a lot of people did that. Right. And that's why those are like one through hundred that they don't have a whole lot of value, but then when you get above a hundred and especially in like the mid two hundreds, they're really expensive because when spawn got popular again, when it was reaching um, a right around issue 300 and Todd McFarlane was going to break the record from Cerebus from Dave Sim for, you know, continuous uh, publishing and, and number of issues for a, a, a creator owned book that got all everybody, you know, there was like spawn fever again. 
and the demand went up and all of a sudden the, the issues that, you know, nobody cared about spawn and they didn't have high print runs, all of a sudden they were hard to find. So again, I think this is going to be really dependent on whether or not the spawn universe takes off or not. Um, but again, it's not that the stories are bad and none of the stories in here are bad, but they feel very much like Spawn. And what I mean by that is the character has been around, like I said, for nearly 30 years, but he hasn't evolved a lot. It, this still feels like a 90s story, you know, um, there's n nothing groundbreaking here. Uh, is it entertaining? Yeah, it's entertaining. Is, is the art good? Yeah, the art's fantastic. Every one of these uh, it, stories. You know, all the backups, the main story, they all have awesome art, different styles, but all, you know, really high quality, very talented artists. Um, but if you weren't a fan of Spawn back in the 90s, it's not like he's changed a lot over the years. It's not like the tone of the story has changed a lot over the years. Um, so, again, that's part of the reason I want to go back and read all the Spawn to see if there is any evolution to the character. Because to me, it, it feels like this... I don't want to say it's stuck in the nineties, but it's still, there's a, there's a tone. There's a, there's sort of a, a feel that it has that still feels very much like, you know, the early spawn issues that I read. So again, if you're a spawn fan, I'd probably recommend it. If you're not definitely probably can skip it. So, uh, all right. What are we going to talk about next? Oh yeah. Um, Jay's next book from writer Philip Kennedy Johnson with art by Salvador La Roca. Colors are by Guru EFX. Uh, Clayton Cowell handles the letters. It's Aliens, and we're up to number six, which is the end of the first arc. Uh, so what do you think of this, Jay? I mean, I mean, I think we've both really been enjoying this Alien title so far. Yeah, I, uh, <clears throat> I was looking forward to this uh, other book as well. Um, I liked it because we didn't know what happened in the last issue where uh, Iris, you know, the girlfriend of Danny, who is the son of uh, Gabriel, the main character of the story, uh, she shot and killed pretty much Bishop and Gabriel. So we assume from the last issue, there's a lot going on in here. Um, there's a big reveal, uh, which was like, got me because I didn't expect that at all, which was kind of fun. I like being surprised like that. Um, then we find out there's a lot more, you know, backstabbing, of course, because everybody's trying to, you know, it seems like it's a concept of every alien movie. It's like there's always somebody in the corporation that's trying to get that alien to make it into a weapon. I, I don't know why they just can't figure out it's not going to work ever, but we're still following that type of thing. Um, Danny is good. Uh, it's a little, a little sad, I guess, but it kind of, I kind of saw that coming. Um, the alpha alien is the artwork is amazing when they draw that. Um, and it just kind of leaves with like, um, not a, like, oh, I can't wait for the next issue, but kind of like, okay, what next? Because that's 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 it. I guess that's the end of the, the first story arc, as they put it, the last page. Yeah, one of the things about it that's interesting that Philip Kennedy Johnson is doing. I don't know how well it's working. Is he's he's sort of introducing this concept of of like the darkness and almost like supernatural type of stuff. And I don't know that that's working. You know, like I, it's almost like he's tr trying to inject a little bit more horror. Um, and to me, like, obviously the first movie is definitely a suspenseful movie. And I guess it's been called a horror movie, but the second movie aliens, to me, that's an action movie. And the stuff that came after is more action than horror, but it feels like he's trying to inject some horror back into it. I don't know. That's a, that's necessary. Um, it, but it's definitely not, you know, he's not hitting this over the head with it. This is definitely an action oriented comic. Um, 
And you're right about the little emotional moment at the end where I was like, oh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't tremendously surprising. But at the same time, I, I kind of hoped that that wasn't going to happen. But um, as I've said, as, as both of us have said all along with this title, if you're a fan of the Alien franchise, you're going to love this book. The fact that it ties in so closely to the movies is uh, is really cool. So and the art by Salvador Roca. I mean, I, I, I know some people don't care for his art and I. He's one of those artists where I, I don't understand how people don't like his art. I think it's like fantastic. Mikhail Yanin is another one whose art's like that. And when people tell me, yeah, I don't really like his style, I'm like, what? Then you don't like comics is kind of the way, way I feel about it. But I don't know. Maybe some people <laughs> think that LaRocca's art is like too, too fake looking or too plastic looking, but I don't know. I really dig it. So anyway, on to my next book. It's Black Widow number 10 from writer Kelly Thompson. Pencils are by Alina Casagrande and Rafael De La Torre. Inks by Elizabeth, uh, Elizabetta D'Amico and Rafael De La Torre. Colors by Jordi Belair. Uh, letters by Corey Petit. I mean, Elena Casagrande, her art, I've talked about how fantastic her pencils have been and, and how much it seems like she's grown as an artist um, since I first saw her work on, on Vigilante Southland. Um, I don't, her art here isn't as, you know, with Ra- with Rafael De La Torre, the art overall in the book, it just isn't quite as good as when Elena's handling it on her own. Um, but, you know, hopefully it's just a few issues where she's getting help because uh, maybe she fell behind. I'm not really sure. But the art overall is still pretty fantastic. And and keep in mind that this this series did win the Eisner for uh, for best new series from from 2020. So it's definitely worth your time. And this uh, issue 10 is is the end of the second arc where. uh Yelena Belova, the White Widow, has teamed up with uh, Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow, and they've been taking on this new villain called Apogee, who's been injecting his followers. He's, he's like the head of a cult. He's been injecting his followers, who are known as the Olio, with this, this substance that gives them superpowers, but it also burns them up and kills them. Um, in the long run and they're not necessarily aware of it and they they sort of don't believe it when they hear it they're they're like no that's that's not true you're just trying to to get us to to you know betray our our cult leader or whatnot so uh, at the end of the day this is like wall-to-wall action as um black widow recruits some help to finally finish off apogee and his um and his cult uh, and it ends up being just a, a, a big fun romp of, of action and uh, the sort of trademark humor that Kelly Thompson always puts in her dialogue. Um, based on the last page, you kind of wonder if the, the people that she's recruited to, to help her with this mission, if we're going to see more of that. You know, it's al- it almost ends up feeling like a team book because um, the second arc has very much felt not necessarily like a solo book, like. Kelly Thompson, much like Carla Pacheco is doing in, in uh, Spider-Woman, is really building uh, a supporting cast for, uh, for Black Widow. The first arc was, was very emotional, and it, it was very much focused on Natasha and her feelings and how she kind of got um, brainwashed and you know got married and had a kid and didn't even realize she was Black Widow. And even though we saw some guest stars like um, the Clinton Barton version of Hawkeye and... Uh, Winter Soldier, Bucky Barnes, it still felt like a solo book right up till maybe the last issue of, of the first arc. It was very much Natasha centric. This is feeling 
still Natasha centric, but much less so. It's almost turning into an ensemble book. So whether or not it, it continues that way, I mean, I think it'll feel even more like an ensemble book if, if it continues with this team that she's sort of put together to, to help her finally defeat Apogee. And I say that defeat Apogee, you know, it's like any, any Marvel villain. They always give a little tease at the end that, is he really gone? Did they really defeat him? So wouldn't be surprised to see uh, Apogee come back. But like I said, this did win the, uh, the Eisner for best new series of 2020. And yeah, when you read this, you'll, you'll understand why. I mean, this is perfect uh, characterization. I've said before how I feel like this is the best Black Widow title that I've ever read. Not that I've read every single one of them, but it's been my, I've read a lot of them and this has been my favorite. And I, I think Kelly Thompson gets uh, Natasha's voice maybe better than anybody. I just love it. Uh, and I'll also mention um, Adam Hughes does fantastic covers. And this is legacy issue number 50 of Black Widow. So if, if any of that interests you, um, then, you know, you may want to pick it up. And I think a lot of people do pick up these just for the Adam Hughes covers. I actually had to buy two copies of this this week because um, I always want to get the Adam Hughes cover, but there's also an awesome Mark's, Mark Brooks cover uh, this week. So I had to pick up that as well. Uh, all right. Up next, uh, another image title. It's Department of Truth number 12 from writer James Tynan. The art is by regular series artist and co-creator Martin Simons. Letters are by Aditya Bidikar. Designer is Dylan Todd. Wow. Um, so this one had almost as big of a twist at the end of it as the first issue of Department of Truth, where we see that Lee Harvey Oswald is the guy who's leading the department. Um, so there's a lot of stuff going on with Cole. He's kind of our POV character who's been recruited into the Department of Truth. Most recently, he went hunting for Bigfoot and, um, you know, sort of met up with some of the, uh, the other members of, of the Department of Truth. One of them who's sort of like, for lack of a better term, you call him like a fixer, you know, the guy that's, that's out there like in the trench, in the trenches, sort of trying to affect people's beliefs. Uh, his name is Barker. And so this, um, this issue gives us a little bit of backstory on Barker, like more so than Barker gave to us on his own because he was out there hunting for Bigfoot with, uh, with Cole. And he gave sort of his version of his own backstory to Cole, or, or at least his, some background into, you know, what his job was at the department of truth, what, what his responsibilities were, what he, you know, what he does and how long he's been working with them and whatnot. But we get a little bit of his childhood here and we learn some things about him that are, that are pretty surprising. And uh, it, it's a big reveal. It's a really big reveal. And it, it, it sort of is summed up very well. But when you look at the, the tease for next month, it says next month, the, the devil's advocate. So, you know, is the Department of Truth doing more harm than good? Uh, Tynan maybe is going to kind of flip the script on us and, and give us um, some reasons like why maybe the Department of Truth shouldn't exist. Uh, you know, just to, you know, use that phrase, play the devil's advocate. So it's, it's going to be pretty interesting because this book is one that makes you think. And, you know, based on, on the things that happen, based on the, the power that is possible with what this concept is 
of the Department of Truth, you know, the potential for abuses there. Just to remind everybody, if you don't have any idea what I'm talking about, the Department of Truth is this secret department in the in the U.S. government where they try to debunk conspiracy theories. So the whole series postulates that if enough people believe something, that it actually manifests in reality. So if you get enough people believing the conspiracy theory, for example, that the Earth is flat, the Earth literally becomes flat at least in the area where all those people are believing it, right? Like if you, if you believe in enough people are believing in Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster, those things become reality. And so the Department of Truth, what they do is they, they use various means of media, whether it be television or radio or, or the internet, and they, they manipulate things to try to make people not believe those things. It's their job to have what's actually true be the reality. They're out there trying to destroy conspiracy theories. But it's dangerous, right? You can you can sow disinformation, you can make things not true actually become true if it's in their best interest. So they're out there manipulating reality and playing God in a way. Um, so yeah, obviously you 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 don't want people to believe in things that are terrible like you know black-eyed children or um I don't know, Bigfoot or uh, I'm trying to think of other great, like UFO abductions, you know, you don't want people to believe those things because it's going to actually harm people. Um, But when you're, they could possibly, and I'm sure Tynan's going to tell this story eventually is something that is true. And then the department of truth, they don't want people to believe it. So they obscure it and they spread disinformation to make less people believe it. So it disappears from reality. So that power in the, in the wrong hands can be obviously abused. And I think that's sort of what this arc is going to be uh, going to be about. And that's where the whole idea of devil's advocate and the title for the next issue comes in. So it's a title that definitely makes you think, and it's a title that's, it's a pretty heavy read. Like you, you definitely have to pay attention or you can get lost real easily. And, and the art by Martin Simons kind of contributes to that. It's not the cleanest art. It's much, much more of a sort of impressionistic watercolor art. Um, so that kind of contributes to that feel of, man, what's going on? It, it definitely suits the book because it, it gives it this kind of weird conspiracy theory mood um, with clean art. It would feel completely different. So, uh, all right, up to the next book we're going to talk about. Big hit. Everybody reads it except me. Apparently, it's Ice Cream Man number 25 from writer W. Maxwell Prince. The art is by Martine Marazzo. Colors are by Chris O'Halloran. And letters are by good old Neon. And I think, uh, you know, they're celebrating the the 25th issue um, by making it oversized. So I think there's a couple of double size, 40 pages instead of 20. And I think there's a couple of stories here. So I know you're a big fan, Jay. What do you think of Ice Cream Man 25? I always look forward to this book as well. Uh, I just like his mind. I don't know where he comes up with these ideas, but uh, Prince is uh, pretty twisted. I love the cover because it's got the plane crash. You know, no, uh, no, no spoiler, but you got to look for the ice cream. Man. He's actually like hanging on and just like waving on the top of the, the, the wing of the plane. <laughs> so he, you'll, you got to look for the covers. There'll be little surprises like that on there. The title of this is called uh, Certain Descents. And as the cover shows, it's a plane that's, you know, falling down. The whole idea of the story in this is you'll have uh, the view of the uh, pilots and how they see how they're going to die. Uh, some of the uh, 
the, the passengers, their view, how things are going to happen. Um, and then the big cool thing about it, though, is people on the, on the ground, how they see the, uh, the plane. Because you have someone that uh, kind of keels over and, you know, is dying, looks up, and instead of seeing an airplane, he sees an angel. So it's all in their perspective of how they see this plane coming down. It's trippy. I, I enjoy it because I always enjoy the, the, the book. Um, you think there is some dialogue going between the two uh, pilots, but you find at the very end it's different from what you assume because they find the black box. Um, they got uh, a coyote, you know, bringing people, you know, across the border and they're all speaking Spanish. They don't translate it. <laughs> so you get so that's kind of cool. And then they when what they see. They see, you know, what they see. They don't see the, the, the airplane. They see something totally different. And like I said, it's one of those issues I always look forward to. And you said it's a double issue. I guess, like you said, they're celebrating the, the, their 25th issue. If you go to the very back, there's like, uh, it's like the, the afterworld and everybody gets judged down there. And the last person we seen being in front of the judge of a, of a court is Ice Cream Man for his sense of what he's done. And they just leave it like that. You're like, ah, oh. <laughs> and I just tell you, hey, you might come back to this world. We might not, but, you know, we'll see you next issue. Mm. I'm like, it's like, that's about right. That's about right. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that sounds like uh, sounds like this creative team. All right, so I enjoy it. It was fun. All right, uh, well, under my next book that I'm going to talk about, it's the United States of Captain America number three. We have the main story, which is written by Christopher Cantwell, with uh, art by Dale Eaglesham. Uh, colors are by Matt Miller, and letters are by Joe Caramagna. And then we have the backup, which is by Darcy Little Badger. I think she wrote the backup in the last issue as well. Pencils in that one are by David Cutler. Inks are by Roberto Poggi. And then same colorist, Matt Milla, and same letter, Joe Caramagna. Very um, appropriate that a Native American wrote this because it has a, a Native American um, version of, of Captain America, which is fantastic. Um, he, this is my favorite of the new, uh, the new Captain Americas that have been, um, that have been introduced so far. Um, so... Uh, yeah, I just I just loved it. So I, I'm really enjoying this story. Uh, I know some people want to spin this into saying that Captain America hates the American dream and he's woke and doesn't love America anymore. And that couldn't be further from the truth. He still stands for the same thing he's always stood for, you know, freedom and equality and helping one another. Um, you know, the, the the classic American ideals that aren't based in politics, basically. Is, is what it's the same thing that he's always stood for. So I think the people that say Captain America is saying he hates America, that he never said that, like, go back and read that first issue. You know, I know there are people going on various news programs saying that and I guarantee you not a single one of them read the issue. Um, they're just trying to, to stir up the pot like they always do. Um, because when you read this again, he's st standing for the same things that he's always stood for and he's inspiring, which is the, that's Captain America. That's who he is. You know, he's inspiring others to, to put on the stripes uh, as they say in the, in the book to, to take the name Captain America and, and adopt it as their own and do whatever they can to help their, their fellow man. And when you talk about a native American doing that, I think it's even more powerful. And the backup story is, is his sort of origin and how cap inspires him. And it's just, it's just fantastic. Like I want, like if anybody deserves to, to, you know, wear the mantle of Captain America and call themselves Captain America, it's a native American, right? It's an indigenous, uh, somebody who comes is a descendant of the indigenous people that lived in, in America. So 
Um, I, I just, I love that. And I, I would love to, to see more of this character, um, Joe Gomez, uh, Captain America. And his, his costume's cool. And, and Christopher Cantwell did his homework in terms of um, talking to some, some Native American uh, Kickapoo uh, consultants that he uh, gives credit to in the book, Keith Blue Cloud and uh, Mosea, I think is how you pronounce it, Blue Cloud, um, that, that gave him some, some information and uh, probably made sure that the costume was authentic and, and whatnot. So I thought it was really great. If, there, if I have any nitpick on it, it, is, it does feel like a bit of a jump between issue two to this one. And the, the whole story, I mean, I know it's supposed to be kind of this road trip story of, of Sam Wilson and Steve Rogers hunting for Cap's stolen shield and, and like kind of like a road trip, you know, like Captain America crossed with Easy Rider. Um, but the problem is there, that Christopher Cantwell wants to cover so much ground because um, he's only got six issues that it, it feels a little bit choppy. And I know I'm nitpicking here because I still really, really enjoy it. But the reason I'm nitpicking is because it's so good that I want more. Like I want those parts that feel choppy. I, I want, I just want more of this. Like I, it needs to be 12 issues instead of six. So the story has a little more room to breathe. And we get a few more character moments because Campbell actually does a pretty good job uh, with the characterization of Cap and with Sam Wilson. And they have such a great friendship. And it, he's done it a couple of times in the first issues where the guys are giving each other a hard time even, you know, and you think who's going to like talk smack to Captain America. Well, if anybody is, it's, you know, Sam Wilson. Um, and it's just like, you know, how guys are when they get together and just tease each other um, because they, you know, that's the way a lot of guys show uh, their affection for each other. And that's great. And we'd get kind of more of that sort of dialogue and, and the story would be able to be fleshed out a little more. It wouldn't feel choppy like it does in moments if Christopher Cantwell just had more space had more pages. Um, so I, I kind of forgive him for, it. I understand why it's that way. Um, and I just selfishly wish that, you know, we got a little bit more. So really underrated book. Uh, Dale Eaglesham art is, is fantastic. It's not quite as detailed as you, you expect Dale Eaglesham art to be. Like if you go and look at his, uh, his Shazam work he did with um, Jeff Johns. And I, I think I heard that uh, Ron Lim is actually filling in on an issue of, uh, of the United States of Captain America. I'm not sure if it's issue four, issue five, but probably to give Dale a, a bit of a break, but overall great issue. Like I said, I love the backup by Darcy little badger. It, it, I was glad we got it because like I said, when I read the first story, like, man, I really want more of, of the Joe Gomez native American version of, of Captain America. And at least we got his sort of origin story and how he got inspired by the Steve Rogers, uh, Captain America. So that was good. Definitely a, a book I recommend. Uh, all right. Up next, I'm going to talk about uh, an image book. I've, I've talked about each issue of it so far. It's a six-issue mini. It's called Made in Korea. It's written by Jeremy Holt. The art is by George Shaw. Letters by Adam Ouellette. And it's basically the story uh, about this future world where most of people are sterile. You know, it's not like the end of the human race and everybody's sterile, but most people can't, can't get pregnant. They can't. Um, give birth. So what a lot of people do is they, there's these very advanced sort of androids that people adopt um, and they're, they're small, they're like child size. And um, this scientist that works in the factory in Korea that develops these things um, develops like an experimental one that he, he gives like artificial intelligence to, and it's much more advanced than all the ones that he 
or his company has produced before. And he sends it out as sort of like a, Hey, let's see what happens in the world experiment kind of thing. And then realizes what a mistake that is and goes and tries to retrieve it. But in the meantime, the people that have adopted this um, Android have fallen in love with it. And the guy, the scientist doesn't have the best social skills and just how awkward he is makes the family suspicious. So they, report him to the police and he's trying to figure out how to get the experimental Android back. Meanwhile, the Android has been sort of co-opted by these two other kids in high school who they don't have the best interests of their fellow students at heart. I'll just put it that way. They're very much malcontents and, and they have their sort of issues. So it's sort of in a way ripped from the headlines, if you will. um, And uh, you know, really explores sort of the the way America is now, even though this is in the future. It's sort of a throwback to some of the things that, that we deal with in social situations, especially for teenagers. And that's all through the eyes of this uh, sort of Android. So, um, but at the end of this issue, there's a bit of a twist where it seems like the story is going to take a complete right turn and very curious to see what happens in the last couple of issues. Um, so even though this is a story about uh, an android, it's a very human story that deals with very real emotional and, and current social issues that really affect us, at least in this country in America. So it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting, um, especially when you, you know, it's like, oh, it's made in Korea, it's written by Jeremy Holt, who uh, is of Asian descent, I believe. So to see it be so on the nose is, is pretty interesting. So, um, I, I just, I read the first issue, like I do a lot of image first issues. Like, ah, I'm kind of curious, where's, where's this going to, what, like, what is this about? I hadn't heard anything about it. And, and the first issue was done so well. And it just, it pulled me right in because the narrative is, is really engrossing. Um, and it's very subtle, like the social commentary in here, it's not, it doesn't hit you over the head. Uh, it, it just kind of presents the story. And you see the influences and you see the way it's affecting the Android and the other people in the story, um, the events that happen and, and how they mirror events in our own lives or in our own world. And it just, it makes you stop and think um, like what are the consequences of, of some of these choices that people are making? So another book I really, really recommend that I don't hear a, a lot of people talking about. Uh, all right. Up next, we have siphon number two. And if you missed it on last week's top cow Thursday, I sat down and talked with Patrick Meany, Mohsen uh, Ashraf, and artist Jeff Edwards, who comprised three quarters of the creative team. Well, I guess maybe I should say 60% of the creative team because we have John Kalis on colors and then Troy Petrie on letters. Um, but it's from a story by Mohsen. Patrick and Mohsen write it, and then Jeff handles the art. And like I said, we, we dove into issue one and talked about some of the big themes of the story. And if you're not familiar, basically, um, there are these these beings throughout time or these people throughout uh, human history who they, they're called siphons and they have the ability to siphon away uh, emotional pain from other people. Um, and it's, it's a good gift to have, but obviously there, there can be some drawbacks to it. And we talked about that in the interview, right? Like if you're, if you're trying to be altruistic and you're taking away other people's emotional and physical pain, to make yourself feel better, to feel like you're doing something. Is that really, you know, if you're doing it more to make yourself feel better because you're doing something positive, is that really, you know, do the end justify the means sort of thing? And, and the siphons that do draw this power from other people, they do 
they can use it like superpowers. It, it extends their life. It gives them strength and vitality. And um, they can even, you know, like blast it out and force blast uh, to, um, you know, hurt other people and, and things like that. So it's an interesting title. And, and we learned all that stuff in the first, uh, in the first issue. And like I said, I talked to the creative team about it. So you can go listen to that, um, that episode. Um, but this second issue was wildly different than the first in a way. Um, but I really enjoyed it. Uh, what did you think, Jay? Well, like I said, uh, the first issue, I didn't know what to expect. You know, I was like, well, I guess I'll read it. You know, it was actually pretty good. It was inter- interesting. Um, the second one, I liked it a lot, too, because I think we're getting more of uh, Silas. You know, like uh, he goes to meet, I guess, Antonio. I guess he's been doing it for a long time. And uh, as you kind of figure out, you know, he took there was a predecessor that he had, but he took her out. So we know he's not a good guy off the bat. We know he's not good. Um, but he gets him to the his loft, I guess. And he starts you know, asking him a, a question, you know, uh, like a scenario. You know, what would you do this, this? And he's like, well, you know, and uh, it kind of reveals a lot more about the, the, the other character, I think. But he tells him, you know, like you were saying that if you take all these bad emotions, eventually it's going to break you down. That's why he looks tired and older because he says you can't do that all the time. And he kind of takes him under his wing to show him, you know, the ropes of how to use the power and how to take other emotions instead of just, you know, um, sadness and depression and fear. And he kind of tricks him in the story because uh, it's all about, you know, money and greed as we as if I go figure that because he says, you know, how do you think I can afford all this? So he kind of uses them and uh, we'll see where it goes from there. But it's a good story. Um, Like I said, I just can't really say too much about it because it'd be a lot of reveal. I'll tell you what's going on in the story, but he manipulates them a little bit. But I think he kind of figures out what's going on. Yeah. And we know that that Anthony's not a good guy. I mean, we saw that in the beginning of the first issue when he uh, attacks the, the previous person um the previous siphon before silas gets the power um you know we see her give we see her give silas the power uh at the beginning of the first issue after anthony attacks so it's, it's not a surprise it's not a reveal that anthony's a, a bad guy when he finally shows his true colors to silas it's you know we already know he's a bad guy so yeah good good character interaction and um you know when i talked to the guys about what they were most excited for they, they talked a lot about issue three and uh, talked about how I was in, sort of inspired by the movie Inception and how how crazy things get in an in issue number three. And it's a three issue series, so there's only one more issue to come. But I definitely hope it sells well enough that we get more arcs because I, I think it's a good it's a good story. And the art by Jeffrey Edwards and the colors by John Kalis are are absolutely spectacular. Uh, all right, on to our next book. It's Silver City number four, first aftershock book I'm going to talk about for this week. Uh, it's called Betrayal. It's written by Olivia Cortaro Briggs. Luca Merrily does the art and colors. Dave Sharp does the letters. I've loved this book from the first issue. Um, when we had Olivia on to talk about it, she got me so excited, got me so hyped up, and this book's lived up to the hype. The first issue definitely sort of set the tone and was super moody, and it, it was everything that Olivia sort of promised. It, the, the series definitely delivered on on the excitement that she built up in that interview. Since then, the story has kind of settled down into a little bit more of almost like a crime noir mystery. Um, And it's funny, I just mentioned Inception because this whole idea of Silver City as this sort of way station or this purgatory after you die, 
but still a very mundane existence. You still have to get a job. You still have to get an apartment. You still, you know, have to pay rent and you still have all these sort of obligations, but you're dead, you know, and there are consequences if you don't do those things, you know, and they're, they're almost sort of worse than being thrown in jail or whatever. But the other part of it is you're talking about people from all different uh, walks of life and all different time periods that are mixed together in this. And, and how did each of them end up in Silver City? And Silver City is only the first realm of the afterlife. Um, Olivia, you know, she talked about how she has so many more stories to tell and there's like more levels and I almost think of it as like Dante, right? In the Inferno with all these different circles of hell. And there's all these different circles of, of the afterlife and there's this big mythology that Olivia has built up. So much like Siphon, I hope we get a lot more of... Um, of the story that Olivia has crafted here. So in this issue, we learn the backstory of one of the, um, one of the main characters. Um, Rue is the main character, but um, one of her allies uh, throughout the entire story so far has been Mickey. And we kind of see how he died. And and we learn a little bit more about Rue's powers and and Mickey seems to have a lot lot of knowledge and he's, he's definitely a resource for uh, Rue and, it, it again it continues to build each each issue has really built on the mythos right and and in this one we sort of learn that there's this i don't it's necessarily a cult but it's definitely an, an organization that seems like they're sort of taking advantage they, they've they've learned how to take advantage of other people in silver city they've learned how to how to sort of bend the rules in their favor um and not in a good way for the way that it affects everybody else. So uh, I'm really looking forward to the next issue, which is issue five. And I think that's the final issue, but again, I, I'd be really surprised if we didn't get another, um, another arc. Cause the other thing that's really interesting, cause this isn't really hinted at at all in this issue and hasn't been throughout. I mean, we know Rue seems to have powers beyond what any of the others do. And there is something uh, any of the others in, in Silver City do. And there is something that's specifically named um, or, or that she's labeled by Mickey in this. And we don't know exactly what it means yet. But when you look at the, the uh, next issue page in the back of the book, and we see the cover for issue five, again, I'm not going to give it away, but Rue looks very different. There's something about Rue that's very different on that cover that hints about where she might have, like why she has these powers, why she's different than anybody else. And maybe she has a different origin. Maybe she isn't actually human. I don't know. Uh, but again, the mythos, the world building, uh, it's, just, it's just fantastic. Like give Olivia Cortero Briggs, you know, you want to talk about needing more than one issue a month. Um, but give her as long a runway as she needs to, to keep telling this story. Um, Cause I would read this title for years. It's, it's just fantastic. Uh, and I want to know, I want to, I want all the answers, but I'm, I'm patient enough. I mean, to me, this is just as, as good as like building up mythology from, from really, you know, fantastic long running um, series that, that people think about like the, the and I'm not, I'm not saying this is Sandman. I've never read Sandman. I, I couldn't compare or Preacher or, um, or Saga or any of those kind of things. But when, I, when you think about those long form stories where 
you know, the entire universe, um, the entire narrative universe has been built by the artist and, and it's vast and it's rich and there's all these ideas and everything can be, um, you know, interactive and pulled in when it needs to be and then set on the shelf for a little while to come back to later. Like that's the potential that this world has that she's built. Um, and I just hope she gets a chance to explore it all, even if it does take years. So hopefully it comes back and hopefully it comes back quickly. Um, cause I don't want to wait. <laughs> I don't want to wait years. Uh, I want to know more and I want to know it now. So anyway, it's a fantastic title. Uh, next book I'm going to talk about is also, uh, an aftershock title. And this one is much smaller in scope, but no less entertaining. It's seven swords from writer Evan Doherty. The art in this particular issue is by Federico Dallaccio, colors by Valentina Bianconi, and letters by Dave Sharp. Now, the first thing I'm going to talk about is the art. The art is very, very good. Um, beautiful, fine line work, um, fantastic action, very kinetic. Uh, the transitions from panel to panel and, the, and the, especially the camera angles are, are where the art shines the most. Um, and the colors are, are fantastic. It's been the same colorist all along. But I do want to point out that it's a different penciler. Um, we had Ricardo Latina do the art in the first couple of issues. And his art was very detailed and very lush. Um, and I hope that he comes back. I hope we haven't seen the last of his art because his art was transcendent. Um, and that's not to say, again, that this art is bad at all. Uh, this art is, is fantastic. Um, but it gives the book a little bit of a different feel. Um, it, it loses a little bit of the kind of the tone that it has of, of being set in this very beautiful um, sort of uh, throwback world, right? I mean, because this is a, a story that's a swashbuckling story about the three musketeers, basically. Um, D'Artagnan is the main character, first one we see, and he's recruiting um, a bunch of other swordsmen, um, to go and take out Cardinal Richelieu, who's the, the classic antagonist of the three musketeer stories. Um, and that lushness and the feel of the Ricardo Latina art did a better job of making it feel like this was a, a story based in the past. Um, the, uh, the art here, it, it just has a little bit more of a modern feel. And there's nothing wrong with that per se, because again, I think the art is really, really great. But I don't know, I just kind of preferred the, the Latina art. As far as the story itself in this issue, um, they finished the recruitment. They've finally brought all of the seven swords together. Um, and they, they rescue somebody who's a, another very famous literary figure. Because that's the other part of this, right? Like when you talk about you're bringing these seven swords together, they're very famous people from, from uh, literature in the past, like Cyrano de Bergerac and uh, uh, Casanova, you know? Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I love that. I love that these are, these are people that you've heard of before um, and they're, they're fantastic swordsmen uh, as well. So I just think that's cool. Um, so they've, they've brought them all together. I won't tell you who the, the last couple are that they, uh, that they rescue and recruit here, um, but they do rescue another literary figure that apparently has uh, clues to what exactly Cardinal Richelieu's plan is. So we do have two more issues to go. And, you know, based on the pacing of this and the action, I, I think they'll be very action packed and, and be very tightly plotted and paced. Um, Cause we have two issues left. We're over halfway there. 
and the team is, you know, finally just all come together. Now clues are starting to add up. I would think that next issue, we're going to, we're going to see tons of action and there's plenty of action in this issue as well, but there's some, some quieter character moments and, and some uh, humor like there's been throughout. So uh, very, very, I mean, I'm not the biggest three musketeer fan in the world, but uh, Evan Doherty has done a, a fantastic job with the story. So another one of those titles that shows the, uh, the good taste of the, the folks over there at Aftershock. Uh, all right. Up next, much like Siphon, uh, next book we're going to talk about is from Top Cow over at Image. Uh, it's called St. Mercy. It's written by John Zerplatten. The art is by Atilio Rojo. Colors by Troy Petrie. And uh, I think Jay liked this one more than me. It's sort of a mashup between like ancient Incan, uh, which were kind of the indigenous people of Peru 500 plus years ago. Uh, so there's half the story is told in that time. And the other half the story is old West. And I, I vastly preferred the old West story, but I don't know. I'm just not a big fan of those sort of um, like indigenous stories from like the Mayans or the Aztecs or the Incans. I don't know. This stuff's just never interested me, um, but you really dug it, Jay. So give us your thoughts. Yeah. I was kind of looking forward to this because uh, like I said, it does with the Incas and I knew it was going to be like some Western thing. I was like, well, how are they going to kind of tie it together? That's what I was curious about. I was like, how are they going to tie all, all this together? Um, I liked it. Uh, like I said, artwork's not, not terrible. Um, I think they could maybe do a little more like, detailed i guess with some of the stuff but uh, that's all right though i mean i, I still enjoyed it um we know we go from the past so we go to the like you said 500 we go to the inca period and then we go back to i guess uh i guess 1871 in arizona so it's like uh kind of going back and forth and i guess the main character i guess we don't know yet if she's in both timelines or whatnot but we know in the that the western days you know they're in charge of taking care of the, I guess the, uh, the riches from that time period. That's pretty much like I said, cause I don't want to give away too much of the story, but I, it's got me kind of interested. I'm kind of hooked on it. Cause I want to see where, where they go with it. I guess I just want to see how, how they're going to, you know, tie it together and what's going on here. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting. Cause when we see the main character, St. Mercy, I, I mean, I'm almost positive. It's gotta be the same person right i mean it she's, looks exactly yeah <laughs> she's yeah she's being set up to be sacrificed back in the day like the incans did um and then all of a sudden she's in 1871 i'm like oh, is she reincarnated like what exactly and then you, you sort of find out that that's not exactly the case um but what you know what is she doing in arizona and and you know there's of course there's the whole idea of uh people in arizona not accepting her because they think she's mexican She's not, she's Peruvian, but that doesn't matter to them. You know, they're just, she's all they care about is her and her father aren't white. And so they're, you know, prejudiced against. So, um, but yeah, I, I love the old West part of the story because it felt very much like a Western. Um, so curious to see where it goes and, and how they tie in these two different timelines of her 500 years ago and her barely 200 years ago. And yeah, I agree with you about the Atilio Rojo art. I've seen his art be a lot more detailed than this. Yeah, um, but there's so much going on. There's so much action. He probably, at times, needed to be a little lighter with the backgrounds, and not put in as much detail, so he could finish the book. 
because uh, <laughs> some of those Western action scenes, you know, they're they're pretty detailed and there's a lot going on, a lot of characters. Oh, so the horses. So he looked. The horses are looking good. Like I say, I think most artists hate drawing horses. They hate. They <laughs> hate drawing horses. <laughs> but there's a lot of horses in the beginning with the with the with the Western. You're like, okay, so he's got to got that down. So maybe that's why he was more irritated with yeah, that. I don't you, know. Yeah. If you ask <laughs> artists, you ask like 50 artists what they hate drawing. I guarantee more than half of them are going to mention horses. Like, yeah. They, they're almost yeah, like i said they're almost the same character but like the one in the inca she has like a little like birthmark in her left uh cheek the one in the cowboy does not have one so that's like, i noticed that off the bat so i was like i don't know if yeah, exactly the same yeah, or when is I, it, yeah is it somebody is it her reincarnated is is it yeah descendant yeah but i'll give another issue see where it goes it's, it's got me kind of interested yep definitely uh all right up next we have winter guard and number one from writer ryan caddy uh, main story art is by uh, Jan Basildua. Colors are by Frederico Blee. Letters by Ariana Mayer. Uh, and then the prelude story artist is Jabril Morissette Fan. Um, and I, I didn't even, I mean, it, it's so weird. They say prelude story, but the whole thing just feels like one big story to me. Um, and the art looks pretty similar throughout. Uh, but I def I haven't seen the Black Widow movie, but I definitely feel like this title is is trying to um, take advantage of that Black Widow movie because it's the Winter Guard, right? Like it's these Russian heroes, and it's about their their infighting, which is sort of what the Black Widow from from what I understand what the Black Widow movie is about. You know, we see Red Guardian, we see Crimson Dynamo, um, we see um, uh, the White Widow, uh, Yelena. Belova, like we saw in uh, in the regular Black Widow title just recently, uh, we see Ursa Major, who's the uh, former member of the the Soviet Super Soldiers, who can turn into a bear. Dark Star, also of the Super Soldiers, is there. Vanguard is there. I think I mentioned Crimson Dynamo already. So, um, yeah, it's it, I, I'm not a I don't know a lot about a lot of these heroes, right? I know the Soviet Super Soldiers pretty well from back in the '80s, but I, I haven't been reading enough Marvel in the last 20 years to, to really know all these characters really, really well. Um, that being said, I, I thought Ryan Caddy did a great job of uh, crafting a story where you sort of don't need to know a lot about these. He's, he's given you the, the, the most important plot points that you need, and there's good uh, character interaction. But I don't know if my interest in these characters is high enough to come back for a, a second issue. I probably will come back for a second issue just because I do think that this is written that well, that it, it kind of deserves me to come back for another issue. Um, but I don't feel like super compelled to come back for another issue, if, if that makes sense. Um, so, you know, I know Ryan, he's talented and I think, Based on the strength of that, I probably will give it uh, another shot um, with the second issue and, and see if it pulls me in more. Because the story is, it's pretty interesting. And if it, this were, were a story that was being told with characters that I was invested in and you know knew a lot about, I probably would be in for sure. But that's like the one thing holding me back. And you know, I just want that's that's why I say it, it definitely feels like this this title was. Um, was basically built to take advantage of the the Black Widow audience, basically. Um, and again, I haven't seen that movie, so 
do I really care that much? Eh, maybe not. Uh, anyway, next book I'm going to talk about is Mom, number two, or Mother of Madness. It's written by Amelia Clark and Marguerite Bennett. It's drawn by Leila Liez. Principal, contributor, and producer is Isabel Richardson. Colors by Triona Farrell. It's lettered by Haley Rose Leon. And it's a bit of a mess. Um, the first issue was also a bit of a mess, but it felt a little more compelling. Um, this does move the narrative forward, and we do see the, the character of Mom. Um, you almost think this is like her, her version of Bruce Wayne going around the world being trained, right? Like she, she puts together a team of people that she confides in about the fact that she gets powers from emotion, uh, and, and basically because of her hormones, which I get it, like Amelia Clark is trying to celebrate the fact that women are emotional, but which is interesting because in a way she's trying to empower women. And it's a big theme in this book about how women aren't weaker and all that. And I, I'm, I'm all for that. But I don't know, does it sort of defeat that purpose by saying women are only powerful when they're hormonal, you know, like? she's trying to say that's a good thing uh, so anyway i mean i'm not going to debate or get into that too much but basically based on her different emotions she has different superpowers like if she gets really stressed out she can turn invisible um you know when she gets mad she she like uh her skin gets like invulnerable when she's really happy she she can like shape shift and so it's just it's just sort of weird and the further she gets away from her period, the less powerful she is. So again, this is sort of her training day sort of issue where she, like I said, she confides in a bunch of different people and they, they help her out. She gets a costume and she does training and, you know, try to control her emotions and whatever, but it just feels like a little, a little messy. Um, I think the art is spectacular uh, by Leila Liaz, uh, especially her, panel layouts and how she chooses to break up the panels at various times, I think works really, really well. Um, but I sort of feel like the, and again, Marguerite Bennett is a very fantastic and talented comic book writer, but I feel a little bit like the fact that this is really Amelia Clark's story, um, that some of the messiness of this may be due to her inexperience as a comic book writer. Um, and that's not to say that, I mean, I hope it sells really well. She has a huge fan base and a huge following. So I, I hope it does re really well, but I just felt like it could have been better. The, the, the first issue, frankly, was better. And the second issue, I probably come back and check out the third, but if the third issue is more on this level of quality and not up to the level of quality of issue one, I'll probably jump off. Um, and the other thing that kind of bugged me a little bit is when, when this dropped last month, uh, when the first issue came out, um, Amelia Clark did a couple of a uh, couple of interviews on, I think one on like, uh, what's that show live with Kelly and Ryan Seacrest, I think it's called. And she, you know, they talked to her about, you know, creating a graphic novel and she talked about how hard she worked on it and everything, but she didn't mention any of her, her collaborators. She didn't mention the artist. She didn't mention co-writer. And it was like, she was taking all the credit for it. And that, that bugged me. Um, and then she also did one of the late night shows. I, th I think it was 
either uh, the Seth Meyers show or Jimmy Fallon. And it was the same thing. She didn't mention, I mean, how do you not mention that Marguerite Bennett is, is, you know, your co-writer on this or Layla Leyes is bringing your story to life. So that really bugged me. Um, but again, she's Hollywood. She's an actress. She has a big following. She could bring people in. She could bring in new comic readers and that's a good thing, but you got to do it the right way. You can't just take credit. This is not all you, Amelia Clark. So that, that really sort of bugged me. Um, so again, hopefully she learns her lesson and next time she gets interviewed by a big, you know, national show like that, she'll, she'll mention her co-creators and give them the credit that they deserve. Uh, all right. Next up, we're going to talk about, um, or Jay's going to talk about uh, a graphic novel, um, Punder World, it's called. And I, I wanted to read this too, because it's by Linda Sedgwick, who I'm a huge fan of Linda Sedgwick. Um, I have original art from her and I loved her bloodstained book back in the day, but there were a ton of books this week and I was trying to read them, uh, you know, in time to record. And when I opened up Punderworld, I saw it was 177 pages and there was just no way I was going <laughs> to have time to, uh, to read it, but it looks fantastic. Um, and it's Linda Sedgwick. So I'm sure there's plenty of humor and, uh, I'm sure it's worth your time. Um, but this is another, another top cow book. So a little, little top cow heavy, this, uh, new comics Wednesday, which is not a bad thing. So anyway, uh, what's, uh, Punderworld all about and what do you think of it, Jay? Well, like I said, uh, she's a great artist and she did a lot of Witchblade covers, uh, Postal covers, uh, Sunstone is another book that she's coming out with. So I was already a fan. So that's the reason why I read it, but I was like, okay, the underworld, Hades. Okay. I'll give it a shot. But you're right. When it opened up, I was like 177 pages. But once you start reading it, you kind of go through it. And I was like, ah, cause I wanted, to, I wanted some more. The whole, the artwork is amazing. Like you said, uh, Hades is pretty much, you know, his, uh, focus around him the main character uh i didn't expect it to be a love story but apparently it was so they got me but uh he goes every day mundane doing his thing with the underworld um it's very isolated uh, god um then he hangs out with uh zeus and them and he has a crush it's the demeter is the mother and persephone is the daughter and i guess all these guys they have like a uh, like a crown or something that kind of represents a crown in their head. Like Hades has horns. Uh, Persephone has uh, flowers. And when she gets excited, the flowers start to like, you know, get brighter in color. So it's kind of, you got to look for all the little details in, in the, in the artwork. But like I said, it was a long story, but it was actually well worth the $17. If you're going to go buy this book, but I would definitely uh, invest the 17 bucks. Cause it's a really good story. Uh, the back end, um, she tells you, you know, to the, the reader, you know, she was just kind of doodling this whole idea of this uh, concept. And then she's like, well, I won't make a, a comic guy. That's going to just take too much time. And she says, Hey, I guess surprise. I actually did it, but I liked it. Um, it was a good novel. Um, of course, you know, it, there's a bunch of adventures going on with him trying to bring her and she doesn't know who she is at the beginning with. That's what I liked about the story is like uh, Persephone didn't know who he was because he's such an isolated God. No one knows who he is. Cause he's always in the underworld. And she kind of shows him his world and it's kind of like, okay. So like I said, it's a love story. It's, it's cute. And I enjoyed it. I'm not gonna lie. It was, it was a fun book and uh, I'm looking forward to the next one. Yeah. It, I definitely want to read it because it, it sounds sort of similar to what uh, Linda did in, in her bloodstain um, digital comic that eventually got collected. It's kind of the same thing, kind of a fish out of water sort of story. Um, and yeah, I think she's really good at those relationship type stories and her art's fantastic. So yeah, I'll definitely check it out. 
Uh, all right, next book I'm going to talk about is another Aftershock book. It's Project Patron number five. This is the end of the story, Terror and Truth, from writer Steve Orlando. Patrick uh, Piazza Lunga is the artist, Carlos Lopez on colors, Hassan Atzman Elhau on letters. And all I'm going to say about this book is it ends in such a way that you really, really want more. Um, because it, it's a satisfying conclusion if you don't get more. But I mean, it ends with the end question mark, because although it, it is an ending, there's something that happens that maybe can be an even bigger story than what we got here. Um, so anybody that's not familiar with Project Patron, it, it's, the, it's Steve Orlando celebrating one of the biggest events, comic book events that, that turned him into a comic book fan, which is the, the uh, death and return of Superman. So in the story, Patron is a, like a Superman type hero that fights this super powerful doomsday-like uh, villain called Woe. And in that battle, Patron is killed and Woe is killed. Um, but the U.S. government knows that the world needs Patron. And so they, they sort of clone him um, and create what's called a reploid. And, but he doesn't have any like personality or agency on his own. And so these people that become part of Project Patron they go into this little like isolation sphere and their consciousness inhabits the reploid and they go out and do the various missions and, and, you know, patron is still the world at large thinks that patron is still around and, and still protecting the world. So halfway through this story, like when Steve Orlando came on, he told us it was going to be a story about the relationships between those people that, uh, that are part of patron project. Cause every time they go into that sphere and, and operate as the reploid operate as patron, they lose some of their life force, like they're shortening their lifespan. So, you know, he's exploring that idea of, of the sacrifice and why people would do that. And especially when you don't get any credit for it because it's all a big secret. Um, so that's how the story starts off. And then it morphs into something a little more sinister with um, this kind of megalomaniac, super evil genius and his machinations because he knows about Project Patreon and how he's trying to manipulate things to gain power and influence and uh, financial gain for himself and how the losses start to mount in the project and how that team of individuals has to sort of, you know, they're all part of Project Patreon, but they're very much individuals and have their own personalities and how they have to come together in a, in a new and different way in order to, to kind of save the day. But then, like I said, at the end of the issue, did they really save the day? Was the price, the, the price that all of them have paid throughout the, the series, was it worth it? Are we going to get more? So I, I think we are. Um, Steve Orlando's, I think, a, you know, a good enough name, and he's been putting out really incredible work this year and, and the end of last year as well. And I think Project Patreon sold pretty well. So hopefully we get more. If we don't, it's still a satisfying story, still a story I recommend. Um, and you know, like a, a lot of Steve's creator on stuff lately, it's really a celebration of the things that he loves so much about comics. If you've been reading his commanders in crisis, you know, that's the same thing. His showing his love of the big epic summer crossover, you know, uh, events with, uh, the highest stakes and universes at stake and, and realities at stake. So, uh, hats off to the entire creative team for project patron, Patrick, uh, Piazza Lunga's art has been fantastic throughout. The colors really hit. Uh, a lot of emotional scenes. Um, yeah, like some really, really great 
great scenes in uh, full page spreads and a couple great ones toward the end of this issue. So I really enjoyed this. It, it, it I was, I had high expectations, especially after talking to Steve and uh, this met those ex expectations. Definitely. All right. Last book I'm going to talk about in detail, Dark Hawk number one from writer Kyle Higgins. Juan and Ramirez handles the art, Eric Arsenega on colors, VCs Travis Lanham on letters. Um, so in the interest of full disclosure, I've never read a Darkhawk comic in my life. He, he wasn't okay. one of those heroes from back in the 90s that I was interested in. I just never picked it up. But I'm a big Kyle Higgins fan, so I, I did go ahead and pick this up. This is a new, from my understanding, because again, I've never read it. But I think I think the guy that was Darkhawk previously was named Chris something or other. Um, and this guy's named Connor. Um, and so this is a completely new character as Darkhawk, but I don't know if it ties in or in what way it might tie in to the old or the previous Darkhawk. I, I have no idea. That being said, it's an interesting enough story, but I don't think I'm going to be back. And not because I, I don't think it's good. Because um, usually when I read a first issue and I don't think it's good, I'm like, well, I got to give it another I got to give it another issue because I, th I think first issues are so hard to do and you need to see what's hap what happens. I think this is good. I just think it's not for me. Um, it, it's just the characters are, are interesting enough, but there's just nothing about it that grabbed me. Um, the art is probably the, what would bring me back. I think Juan and Ramirez art is, is fantastic. There's a couple of things he does that are really, really cool in terms of, of framing things and, um, it especially shows up in the digital where you get a picture of Connor and the only thing that changes is kind of the background. And it, it, it's a very great technique and it looks really, really well, works really, really well in, in digital. But I don't know, there was just nothing here that felt like really original. Um, and again, if I, if I had more nostalgia for the Darkhawk character, I could see myself coming back. Um, so yeah, ultimately I thought it was, it was probably a little better than average, but I don't know. I, I, there's again, nothing that grabbed me. I'm, I'm not looking to add <laughs> any books. I read so many books already. And that, that probably has something to do with it as well. If I, if my reading list was shorter, um, I might be willing to add this uh, because he does look cool. And, you know, Kyle Higgins is, is a, I'm a fan of his. So I don't know. I don't think I'm going to be back. I say that, but then I'll probably be like, well, it's issue two. I better give it a try and end up reading it and that'll suck me in. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there's some interesting ideas here and there's some emotion and some, some really great character moments, but I just don't think, I'm not even sure if I can, if I can uh, do a good job of articulating. I feel like I'm not doing a good job of articulating why it, it was a miss for me. Um, because again, I think it's a quality book and technically a very good comic, um, especially the art, like I said, but I don't know, just felt like it was missing something for me. So, uh, all right, well, let me give a rundown on some of the other books that are coming out today that you might want to be on the lookout for. Uh, I think we talked about all the after, no, we did not talk about all the Aftershock books. We have uh, Girls of Dimension 13, number five, which finishes off that story um, from Aftershock. And then over at Boom, a couple of books you might want to be on the lookout for. Dune, House of Atreides, number nine of 12. Uh, a lot of people looking forward to that movie. 
there's also Once in Future, number 19 from Kieran Gellin and Dan Mora. That's the, the modern um, uh, King Arthur book that Boom puts out. Also, Something is Killing the Children, number 19. That's one of James Tynan's uh, creator-owned books. Very popular. Also rumored to be coming uh, to a TV set near you. Uh, do they call them TV sets anymore? Uh, anyway, uh, if you're curious about what books we talked about on the DC Comics uh, Spotlight yesterday, Action Comics number 1034, Batman Reptilian number three, Batman Superman number 21, which is the final issue of that series, Checkmate number three of six from Brian Michael Bendis. We also talked about Detective Comics 1042, uh, Harley Quinn number six from Stephanie Phillips, my favorite DC book of the week, Icon and Rocket season one, number two of six. Uh, Mr. Miracle, The Source of Freedom, number four of six, which was Rocky's favorite uh, DC book and, and was spectacular as well. Also, the fifth issue of Robin from Joshua Williamson. Uh, Superman 78, number one from Robert Venditti, which continues the, the Donner verse. Uh, Richard Donner, who directed most of Superman 2 and all of Superman 1 and was supposed to do a third film and was going to have Brainiac as the villain of that third film. And then obviously... You know, he had a disagreement with the producers and didn't even finish Superman 2, never came back for Superman 3. But this gives us a chance to see maybe what his Brainiac uh, story would have been like. Uh, so I really, really enjoyed that. Uh, Superman Son of Kal-El from Tom Taylor is uh, has its second issue, which was, uh, I thought, a big improvement on issue one. Superman versus Lobo, number one of three from Tim Seeley, which is a black label book. And then a couple of Wonder Woman titles, Wonder Woman number 778 and Wonder Woman Black and Gold, number three of six. Uh, over at, let's see, IDW, we have uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number 121, as well as a new Transformers series called Shattered Glass, number one of five. From Image, in addition to the books we talked about, we have the final issue of Die from Karen Gillen and Stephanie Hans with number 19. We have Echo Lands, number one, from J.H. Williams III. Um, and I thought that was pretty spectacular, too, but I didn't feel like I had a good enough grasp on the story to talk about it, even in general terms. Um, there's a couple of essays in the back from the, the creative team that really kind of explain just how big in scope that story is going to be. So give me another couple issues and I'll probably be talking about it on the podcast. Uh, we also have Philadelphia number 16. We have uh, old tale, old guard tales through time. Number five of six uh, oblivion song by Robert Kirkman is up to number 33 uh, over at Marvel. In addition to the books that we talked about amazing fantasy, number two of five from Kari Andrews, which was okay. It wasn't quite up to the level of issue one. Might be done with that series. It wasn't grabbing me. Uh, we have Avengers Annual number one, which uh, I didn't get a chance to read, but that uh, supposedly wraps up the Infinite Destinies storyline that um, Jed McKay has been telling. So I'm very curious to read that. Uh, we have a new cable series called Cable Reloaded number one. I read it was okay. Didn't really feel that I needed to talk about it in detail. Uh, Conan the Barbarian number 24. Extreme Carnage Riot, number one. We have a Marvel Voices Identity, number one. Nonstop Spider-Man, number four. Uh, Star Wars has a couple of titles. Darth Vader, number 15, as well as Dr. Aphra, number 13. Strange Academy is up to number 12. The latest issue of Thor with number 16. There's a Symbiote Spider-Man Crossroads, number two of five. And Wolverine, number 15. So you can see tons of books this week. 
um, a lot of titles. Um, also from uh, Source Point Press, uh, Suicide Jockeys number one, which the, the cover caught my eye and seems like it's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, when, you, when you talk about jockeys, I think it's about like guys that pilot or race spaceships, I think is what it looks like from my understanding. Um, and I, I saw it on social media and I was like, man, I might need to check that out. It looks pretty good. Um, and then we also started receiving some, um, some Titan comics to, um, to review. So uh, Blade Runner number 2029 uh, or Blade Runner 2029 number seven, uh, which I flipped through and looked interesting. And then Hero uh, Horizon Zero Dawn Liberation number two. Uh, so if you're uh, a fan of uh, Horizon Dawn or Horizon Zero or whatever that game is called, uh, you might want to check that out. Uh, the only reason I didn't actually read Blade Runner 2029 is I still haven't seen the movie. Um, but we also got uh, Blade Runner Origins, which I think comes out later this month, which is supposedly the story of the first Blade Runner, uh, the first guy to go after replicants, uh, which I read, which is really, really good. Uh, meanwhile, over at Valiant, Ninjak number two, which I tried to read, but uh, and I know like especially even other comic book artists are big fans of Javier Polito. His art just does not do it for me. And I, like I read the Charles soul She-Hulk run that, that he did, despite the fact that he wrote it and I thought it, it was okay, but that's more of a slice of life with She-Hulk being a lawyer. Um, to me for Ninjak, you need somebody that's got real kinetic style and I just couldn't follow his art. I couldn't figure out what was going on. Uh, so I was kind of disappointed because I'm a huge Ninjak fan, but I've tried to read both first issues now and I just, I can't get through them. It's, it's a bit of a disappointment. Uh, it's just not my style of art. Um, anyway, finish up with uh, vault comics, barbaric number three from Michael Marisi and then blue flame number four from uh, Christopher Cantwell, which has been a, a really, really great title. So I'm really looking forward to, to picking that up. Uh, we don't get, um, we don't get preview copies for, for vault, unfortunately, because they put out some really good stuff. So anyway, any uh, other books that I missed Jay that you want to call out? Yeah, it's uh, from uh, scout comics. It's uh, rabbit world number three of four. I like that series. It's, it was late. It's supposed to be out on the fourth, but it's coming out this week. So I, I enjoyed that one. And my right. book of the week would be uh Punderland Cause I, like I said, I never thought I would sit there and read 177 pages, but I did. And I really enjoyed it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. My book of the week is so tough. I mean, like I said, the, um, the DC book that I enjoyed the most would have to be um, Icon and Rocket. Now, did any of these books that I read today of, of the Wednesday's books, were they better than Icon and Rocket? Mm, I don't know. I don't, I don't think they were. I mean, United States of Captain America actually comes close. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's some really high quality books. And you know what? Now that I, I'm looking at this, we, we forgot to mention one book that we were going to talk about. And it's your book, Jay. It's uh, oh, Spider-Man. Spider-Man, yeah, Spider-Man Life Story Annual uh, Number One. And that was actually pretty good, too. Yeah. And, and that this pulls back from um, the Spider-Man Life Story series that Chip Zdarsky wrote uh, a while back. And it's kind of interesting because we didn't get a lot of J Jonah Jameson in that uh, Spider-Man life story uh, oh, yeah. series. Uh, but this annual is all about J Jonah Jameson. Um, 
I liked it because it was like more like a what if, you know, like if you got turned in by uh, Mac uh, Gargan, who was actually, you know, Scorpion. So that's, that's it his whole time in jail. It's pretty much the whole premise of the book. You know, he's just boiling over. I mean, that's like, what, 35 years just thinking of Spider-Man yeah. <laughs> while you're in prison? <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's really good. And and, and, I, and I've gone on record as saying I'm not a big fan of that Spider-Man life story uh, by Chip Zdarsky. Um, you know, I wasn't a fan of Chip Zdarsky's anything for a long time. I didn't care for sex criminals, didn't care for Howard the Duck. Um, Spider-Man life story didn't do it for me. I felt it was far too negative uh, of a story focus too much on the, the negative aspects of, of Spider-Man. It just didn't work for me. And in a way this, this fits right in with, with what Zdarsky did in focusing on the negative with J Jonah Jameson being in prison. Um, but in, but it sort of suits J Jonah Jameson, you know, like he's, he's reaping what he sowed all those years of, of hate and vitriol against Spider-Man, you know, so it kind of works. And then the way it ends um, it, it ends in a, maybe a different way than you expect based on how the, uh, the rest of the, the story went. So yeah, I, like if I had to weigh them, like the, the six issue series and the annual, I, I enjoyed the annual way more, I Thought the annual worked way better and felt m- like more of an authentic, uh, Spider-Man story. So yeah, definitely. It was a, uh, definitely good. Like what if though, that's what I thought. It would, you know, that's what it seemed like to me, like a good, what if story. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the other, the other, <laughs> thing i think that really helped it out for me is the fact that it's mark bagley art so it feels like a spider-man story uh, yeah, that was he, great. yeah yeah he handles the pencils andrew hennessy is on inks and matt miller does the colors with travis lenham on letters so yeah apologies for for missing that i'm glad i remembered that it was uh it was there yeah it was pretty solid but ultimately i'm still going with icon and rocket as my favorite uh book of the week but man silver city great seven swords great Project Patron, great. Made in Korea was great. The Alien book was great. Um, Siphon 2 was was fantastic. Um, absolutely loved the Joe Gomez version of Captain America in, in the United States of Captain America. So really solid week. Really, really solid. But if I had to only pick, <laughs> yeah, if I could only pick up one book and, and read one book, it would definitely be Icon and Rocket. So, uh, all right. Well, that's going to do it for this episode, everybody. Hope you enjoyed it as always. And we will talk to you next time. Thank you. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com. Or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash the comic source. Do a search for the comic source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.